Ah, it's so good to have you here. So good to be with you this morning. Joshua chapter 7 is where we're going to be headed this morning. We are in the midst of a series in both Joshua and Psalms. As I've shared before, this is the first time in 38 years as a pastor I've sort of layered one series on top of another. And we're taking a couple of chapters in Joshua, and then we're going to look at one of the what's called enthronement psalms, Psalm 90 through 99. And uh, so last week we were in Psalm 92, and this week we're back in Joshua, in Joshua chapter 7. Let's be reminded that at the beginning of our series in Joshua, that God not only has a plan and purpose for each of us individually, personally, he's a personal God, But God has a plan for his people corporately, in community with each other. Today, he calls people to be part of a local church like the Oasis. Back in the Old Testament, he was working through his chosen people, the Israelites. And he was calling them to go into the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, that would be all that they could experience in this life with him. And he wanted them to move as a group. And we have seen up to this point, there's been a lot of positive things. They have leaned into God. They have trusted in the Lord. They have put their faith in him to be able to cross the Jordan River at flood stage. And then last, a couple weeks ago, we saw that They trusted in him to bring the walls of Jericho down. And so there was that great victory at Jericho. But now we come to Joshua chapter 7. And if I had to title this chapter, I would title it The Agony of Defeat. I'm dating myself here, but back when I was growing up in the 60s and 70s, I would watch a show on Saturday afternoon called Wide World of Sports. Some of you may remember that show. And at the very beginning of the show, when the show was being introduced by the narrator, they would have these clips of sporting events and people doing tremendous feats in sports. And it would get to the point where he would say the thrill of victory and they would show this shot of this amazing... Uh, sports figure doing something spectacular and then they would say the agony of defeat and this ski jumper would come off the ski slope and literally lost complete control and his skis started to twirl around and he just crashed and burned well that's where we are in the book of Joshua as Great as things have been going for the Israelites, they're going to crash and burn in this chapter. And we can learn a lot of lessons and glean a lot of principles from a chapter like this. And one of the things that we can get right away is that we are never more vulnerable as God's people than after spiritual victories. That we have to be very careful that as we're riding our spiritual highs, if you will, and going from victory to victory like the Israelites did, 
that we don't realize that it's at those times that we can be most vulnerable. I'll come back to this in just a moment, but keeping with the sort of the sports metaphor, I played sports for many, many years and even watching sports. And, you know, there are teams out there and even people out there in individual sports that clearly might have more talent than their opponent. But in their head, they've got this. They don't really have to show up. And what ends up happening is they get upset. And that's exactly what's happening here in the book of Joshua when we come to Joshua chapter 7. The Israelites crossed the Jordan River at flood stage and they saw the great victory at Jericho and now they come to Ai and they're going to fall flat on their face. So let's see why they fell flat on their face. Why did they fail? What can we learn from their experience? What principles can we glean to apply to our own walk with the Lord? And one of the things that we see right at the beginning in chapter 7, verse 1, is this. Notice God's word starts out with the word but, which is a tremendous term of contrast. The end of chapter 6, again, things are great. Then you come to chapter 7 and not so great. And notice God's word said, but the Israelites disobeyed the command about the city's riches. Achan, son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, from the tribe of Judah, by the way, the same tribe that Jesus came from, stole some of the riches. And the Lord was furious with the Israelites. What's Joshua telling us here? Well, I'd like you to go back to chapter 6 for just a moment and pick it up in verse 17. These were verses I really didn't touch on a couple weeks ago, but obviously it's applicable for today's story. Before the Israelites went into Jericho, here were the further instructions that God gave to his people. He says in verse 17, The city and all that is in it must be set apart for the Lord, except for Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house, because she hid the spies we sent. But be careful when you are setting apart the riches for the Lord. If you take any of it, you will make the Israelite camp subject to annihilation and cause a disaster. All the silver and gold, as well as bronze and iron items, belong to the Lord. They must go into the Lord's treasury as an offering. God is establishing with his people at the very forefront the principle of first fruits. The principle that the first fruits, the first spoils, if you will, of victory need to go back to the Lord as an acknowledgement from God's people that it is only through God that we are achieving victory. Okay? And now we come to chapter 7 and we read about this man, Achan, who has totally disregarded and disobeyed the word of the Lord and acted unfaithfully in taking what God said should not be taken. Now we're going to see more of the background here of what's going on, but I want to point out this very, again, important principle. Not only are we most vulnerable after a victory in our lives, but 
Notice that God is holding the Israelites collectively responsible for this defeat. It says in verse 1, the Israelites disobeyed the command about the city's riches and that the Lord was furious with the Israelites, not just with this man Achan. Why? Why is that? Because God calls us into community with one another. That's God's design, both Old and New Testament. As we talked about last week, God designed his people to be planted together in his house. Spiritual growth and spiritual maturity do not take place in a vacuum. You and I grow and mature and become who God created us to be when we are living together with one another, reaping the benefit and the blessing of each other's lives as we share our gifts, our talents, our abilities, and all those things, we all can mutually benefit and grow from being together. And so we are responsible for one another. And, and God is reminding the people here, one affects the whole, both positively and negatively. If one person comes into, say, a church like this and grows spiritually and comes in with this Christ-like attitude and this servant's heart and they share their gifts and abilities and talents and all of that, we all are blessed and we all benefit from the one. But the opposite of that is true. You have someone come into a fellowship like this and they're living in blatant sin, and they come in with anger and bitterness and resentment in their heart, and they come in with a bad attitude every Sunday and every Wednesday or whatever, that their, obviously, life negatively affects and influences the whole body. I mean, you and I know this to be true as part of a family. God calls us also to be part of a family, and what affects one in the family affects everybody in the family. That's just the way it is. We also know this to be true in sports. I was a part of many, many teams, football, basketball, and baseball, growing up in my life. You could have one person on that team that brought something negative and the whole team was affected. You all know this to be true even in business or in your jobs or all of that. If you're part of a group of people and you're all there called to accomplish something, one positive or one negative person can totally change the environment and affect the entire group. One affects the whole. And that's why then all of us have to consider the fact First of all, that we are responsible for one another, whether we like it or not, or whether we want to accept it or embrace it or not. If people aren't willing to be part of a community of believers and make some kind of positive difference in that community and share their gifts and talents and abilities, they're withholding blessing and benefit from their fellow Christians. And God's going to hold us responsible for that. The same thing is true with 
the positive side of that. God will bless and reward those who take that sense of responsibility and come consistently to the house of God with, with what they can bring in order to be a blessing and benefit their fellow Christians. Because the one affects the whole. And there's another reason why God held the Israelites collectively responsible. Because again, what Achan did was not born out of a vacuum. It did not take the Israelites very long at all to begin to allow a spirit of lethargy and complacency to come into their spirit of the group. And it was out of that sort of lackadaisical spiritual environment, an unhealthy environment where people weren't committed to growing in the Lord and worshiping the Lord and keeping Him first in their lives and giving Him their first fruits and all of that. It was out of all of that that someone like Achan then was created, if you will. And the same thing is true today. That's why as a pastor... I am continually, you know, trying to make sure that as a church, we are creating an environment that is a positive spiritual environment where people come and can grow and be challenged and be encouraged and all of that because there are so many other churches out there and, and communities of believers where God is not the focus and where people aren't growing and there's so many other things that they're getting caught up in and in that kind of an environment, that's going to create a lot of other issues. So we all need to be responsible to make sure that we are maintaining the kind of environment where God is present, where God is working, where we are growing, and where we're continually moving forward. And that's why God says, I'm holding all of the Israelites responsible for this. Because it wasn't just Achan who actually did the sin that is to blame here and take responsibility. It is all of you. Because every last one of us is responsible for what kind of environment is being created in our group. The other thing I want to point out before I move on to verse 2 is that phrase at the end, the Lord was furious with his people. Yes, this means angry, but more importantly and, and more technically correct, it means that God has a passion for his people. See, God has a lot of emotion and feeling for his people. He burns in his love for each of you and for us collectively as a group of people. That's how much God cares. 
That's why I think it hurts the heart of God so much whenever even we can conclude, oh, God doesn't care, and he's distant, and he's aloof, and all of that. No, no. God burns for his people every day and wants nothing but the best for his people. And that's why he was so burning here with a holy passion when his people had created this kind of environment that, that led to their defeat. Because God doesn't want to see his people defeated. God doesn't want to see his people have to suffer like this. God wants to lead his people in victory. But God will not force himself or his victory upon his people. In fact, even though God provides every resource to make victory possible in our lives, both as a church and individually, at the same time, he does not make defeat impossible. Let me repeat that. Though God provides every resource for his people to achieve victory, at the same time, God never makes defeat impossible. That's up to us. That's up to us. Are we going to go God's way or are we going to go our way? We're going to live independently of God or are we going to learn to live dependently on the Lord? And now beginning in verse 2, you begin to see the kind of spiritual lethargy and complacency that had settled in to the nation of Israel that really was the reason behind their defeat. Notice verse 2. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai because Ai was the next objective on Israel's path of conquest, which is located near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and instructed them, go up and spy on the land. So the men went up and spied on Ai. They returned and reported to Joshua, don't send the whole army. About two or 3,000 men are adequate to defeat Ai. Don't tire out the whole army, for Ai is small. The first thing I want us to see, nothing wrong with Joshua sending spies. He did that to Jericho. But part of Joshua's responsibility in this is he listened to them. He went along with what their advice was. And what we see, first of all, is prayerlessness. The people of God, including the leaders, including Joshua, did not seek the Lord's mind and heart on this matter of AI and how they should approach AI. You see nothing here about them going to the Lord and saying, Lord, what do you think? How do you think we should deal with AI? And the reason we know that they were prayerless is because if you go over to chapter 8, verse 1, and we'll talk more about this in detail next week, we know what the Lord's mind was concerning AI. It wasn't take just two or 3,000 people because that would be enough. Notice what the Lord told Joshua in chapter 8, verse 1. Take the whole army. That was the Lord's will. You and I as the people of God get into trouble and will suffer defeat and experience failure in our life when we don't pray about things. When we don't take 
things to the Lord and ask the Lord, what is your guidance on this? What is your direction on this? What is your thoughts on this, Lord? When we try to figure it out on our own, and that was where the Israelites were. Can't you just see it? It's like, ah, we crossed the Jordan River at flood stage, and, and we saw the walls of Jericho come down. God, we've got this. Well, we, don't need, we don't need to pray about this. You know, it's like, it's like Christians who just take the big things in life, the crises in life to the Lord, but everything else we just sort of handle on our own. Prayerlessness. You also see there, obviously, in those verses, in verse 3, that they were guilty of underestimating the strength of the enemy and overestimating their own strength. We don't need to take the whole army. We don't need to tire out. Let's just take a couple thousand. AI's so small. It will never be a problem for us. Their overconfidence led to presumption and pride. It's like, again, you can see it. God, we needed you to cross a flooded river. And God, we needed you to overcome those huge walls of Jericho. But God, this is just a little bitty city. We don't need you. We can go up there without you. And we can conquer it on our own. And obviously that was not the case. One of the things that we glean and learn from the story of Ai and the defeat of Israel at Ai was we need as God's people to always live in dependence and reliance on the Lord no matter what. And we need to grow in our reliance and dependence on the Lord. There's only two choices. Either we live dependently on the Lord or we live independently. And saying, God, I, I got this. And we know where that spirit of independence comes from. It comes from our spiritual enemy, Satan himself, the devil. I mean, if you know the story in the background of Satan, the whole mindset was, I don't need God. I can do this, and I thank you, God, I, I will do this on my own. And ever since the fall of Lucifer, who became Satan, that's one of his great strategies, if you will, in attacking people, is seeking to enable them and encourage them to live independently of God. You don't need God. God's just a big killjoy anyway. God doesn't have your best interest at heart. He doesn't love you. You're not going to have victory in your life if you follow God. Do your own thing. Be your own person. You know, the so I did it my way. That's the mantra of the world. That's the philosophy of the world. I don't need God. And that's exactly where the people of God had gotten to. We don't need you, God. We can defeat the city of Ai without you. The other thing that is not maybe seen very evidently here, but if you study the geography and all of that, part of why the spies told Joshua, let's not send the whole army, because it's a, 
it's a steep, treacherous, hard terrain to navigate. You see, Ai was up into the mountains from Jericho. You get to Jericho, and then you've got to go up this very steep, rugged terrain to get to Ai. It's built up into the crevices, if you will, the rocks in the mountains. And it's like, we don't need to exhaust a whole army to make that run. Let's just, let's just take a couple thousand men and do it. And that's part of the other reason why they didn't notice take the Ark of the Covenant. There's no mention of them wanting to take the Ark. And we know that the Ark of the Covenant was symbolic of the presence of God. It's like they're basically saying, God, we don't need you. We'll leave you behind. We don't need the Ark. We don't need to take the Ark. We can do this without you. And it's because of all those things, that spirit of lethargy and complacency and comfortability in the wrong way, that presumption and pride and prayerlessness that brought about the defeat of the Israelites and created an environment that someone like Achan thought it was a good idea to just blow off what God said, like it's no big deal. And even though God said, don't take it, I'll take it. What's the big deal? But notice, verse 4, about 3,000 men went up and they fled from the men of Ai. The men of Ai killed about 36 of them and chased them from in front of the city gate all the way to the fishers and defeated them on the steep slope. And the people's courage melted away like water. 36 men had to die as a really hard lesson for Israel to say, it didn't work out so well that you thought you could do this without God, did it? In fact, notice, this bitter defeat demoralized Israel. They were utterly discouraged, which is what it means when it says their courage melted away like water. And like we do many times when we suffer failure or defeat, all of a sudden, Joshua, even the leader of God's people, his attitude goes in the tank. He begins to experience a lot of self-pity and, oh, woe is us, and literally begins to almost blame God for their defeat. Look at the words of the Bible beginning in verse 6. Joshua tore his clothes. He and the leaders of Israel lay face down on the ground before the ark of the Lord until evening and threw dirt on their heads. And then Joshua prays, O oh, Master Lord, why did you bring these people across the Jordan to hand us over to the Amorites so they could destroy us? Wow. Isn't it amazing how much God gets blamed for? It's really not God's fault. It's our responsibility. If only we had been satisfied to live on the other side of the Jordan, O oh Lord, what can I say now that Israel has retreated before its enemies? And when the Canaanites and all who live in the land hear about this, they'll turn against us and destroy the very memory of us from the earth. And what are you going to do, God, to protect your reputation? Finally, Joshua starts thinking about God. First of all... <clears throat> This wasn't God's fault that the Israelites suffered this defeat. 
This was the Israelites' fault. This was their responsibility. This was Achan being disobedient and taking what God clearly said don't take. This was an attitude of prayerlessness and presumption and pride that had literally settled into the spirit of the camp of Israel. There was all kinds of reasons why they suffered defeat. Even the defeat of this small little itty-bitty town called Ai. After these glorious victories and seeing the hand of God move and all of that, now they suffer this ignominious defeat. But notice the Lord's response to Joshua in verse 10. He says, get up. Why are you lying there face down? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenantal commandment. You don't get this in the Hebrew, but literally Joshua is continually throwing himself down on the ground, face down before God. And it's almost like, I'm, we're sorry. We, uh, what do we do? And God's like, look, there's a time to humble yourself before me as God, but this is not that time. You need to get up and deal with what needs to be dealt with and learn from your mistakes as my people and move on and achieve victory. I don't want you to stay down. I don't want you to wallow in your defeat. I don't want you to allow your defeat to define you and keep you there. Okay, you made a huge mistake. Let's learn from the mistake, but let's move on because I've got victory planned for my people. Not defeat. So get up. In fact, God says this twice to him. Notice verse 13. Get up and ritually consecrate the people. Basically call my people back to rededicate themselves to me. Let's deal with what needs to be dealt with and then let's move on. And notice what other sobering words God says to Joshua to relay to the people. Look at verse 12. God says, the Israelites are unable to stand before their enemies. Wow. Why? Because we didn't think we needed God. And God is basically saying, you realize, when you were following me, and when I was with you, you were invincible. You were unstoppable. Jordan River at flood stage couldn't stop you. The walls of Jericho couldn't stop you. You just, you were on your way. But the moment that you thought you could do it without me, now you can't stand before anything. And God is saying the same thing to his people today. He's saying, you realize when you take me along, the Romans 8, 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? That when you follow me and you take me along, you're unstoppable. There is no one or nothing that can defeat you. But if you don't take me along, if you do not learn to rely and depend upon me, then you can stand before nothing or no one. Everything will get the best of you. Everything will defeat you. Everything will get under your skin. Everything will stop you because you don't have me. 
And then God even says these sobering words. He says, Joshua, if you don't get up and deal with this, verse 12, I will no longer be with you. Ooh, that had to send a chill up the spine of Joshua. It reminds me of that conversation that Moses had with God. When God was like, I am so fed up with dealing with these people, he says to Moses, he says, I don't want to go with them anymore. And Moses basically pleads with God and says, God, if you don't go with us, then we don't even want to go. Because what good is it for us as your people to go without you? You're the whole reason for going. What good is it for us to experience whatever we're going to experience if we can't do it with you? You're the joy. You're the treasure. Not the promised land. If, if we have the promised land, but we don't have you, then that means nothing. That'd be like us going to heaven as Christians and God not being in heaven. The glory of heaven isn't heaven. The glory of heaven is God. Heaven's just sort of like the gravy. And that's what God's people, that's what we have to get. And God is basically saying to his people, if you're not going to do it my way, I'm, I'm not going. That's really something that strikes me as a pastor, obviously, of a local church. Because as we move forward throughout our history, there is no time at all that I want us to be moving without taking God with us. If God isn't going with us, then there's no reason for us to even have these doors open. We might as well lock the doors, shut it, and not even have services here. Because unless God is here, it doesn't mean a thing. It's about experiencing the presence and power and person of God every week. And all that we do that really makes what we do here matter and meaningful. And that's what the people of God lost at this time. It was like other things began to mean more to them, including the stuff of the world, than it did having the presence and power of God with them at all times. They began to live independently rather than dependently upon the Lord. But God's remedy was very clear. Get up, Joshua. This isn't, this isn't something that needs to define you. This isn't one and done and you're never going to get another chance again to correct this. As we said a couple weeks ago, God will never leave his people with an unconquered stronghold in our life. He's going to bring it back around again until we overcome it and get through it. And so God's going to give them a second chance to get back to AI and do it the right way, as we're going to see next week. So God is like, Joshua, don't grovel, get up. Let's deal with what needs to be dealt with. Let's correct the things that need correcting. And then let's move on to victory. And God may be encouraging some of you with those same words today. Okay, maybe you're in a season right now where you're suffering some defeat and maybe you failed the Lord and whatnot. 
It's our enemy that wants to kick us when we're down and keep us down. It is God who reaches out to us and says, okay, my child, you made some mistakes. All right, let's learn from it, but let's get back up and let's keep on going. Because we don't need, as God's people, to be defined by our failures and defeats. God never wants that to be the case. God chooses victory for his people and wants to put his people on the path to victory at all times. But here's the single biggest thing that we as God's people need to carry with us if we're going to achieve a lifetime of victory. And that's it. We always need the Lord. We always need the Lord. We need to always rely and depend upon the Lord. Without the Lord, we will always suffer failure and defeat. With the Lord, we're always going to achieve victory in our life. And so we need to make sure that today, before we leave this place, that we're sort of putting a a stake into the ground driving a a nail, if you will, into our life and saying, God, I want to acknowledge today that I need you and that from here on out, I'm going to live in, in growing dependence and reliance upon you. Let's stand and close in prayer. Father, I pray today that the hard lessons that the people of Israel learned in their defeat at Ai would be something that would be very helpful for us as your people today. That we wouldn't make the same mistakes, God, that they made at that time. That we would realize how vulnerable we are after victories that we would realize, God, how easy it is for a spirit of lethargy and complacency to creep into our lives. To think, God, that we've got this, that we only need you for the big things, the crises of our life, but God, we don't need you in the everyday. We can handle it, God. We can handle the small things, God. We'll just check into you for the big things. Oh, God, we confess that is sin. We need you in everything and for everything and at all times, God. And if we're going to see victory as your people, we need to take you with us every step of the way. So God, I pray today that as we worship you, as we acknowledge and declare our need of you, God, that 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 would just be solidified in our hearts and minds like never before. That God, from this day forward, we're going to do everything we can to set ourselves on the path of growing in reliance and dependence upon you. We're going to cry out for our need of you every day. We're going to humble ourselves before you and remind ourselves how much we need the Lord. Because with you, God, we'll always be victorious. With you, God, no enemy can stand in our way. But without you, we'll never achieve victory. So God, go with us today. Encourage us to get back up 
and keep on moving towards victory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.